Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're beginning a new series, and this is a little bit of a misdirection. I'll talk about it in a moment, but we're beginning a new series on Bethany values. This will be six weeks before Easter, and then we'll do our Easter series, and then we'll jump back into his story, uh, what we were doing in the Old Testament. But today I'm going to talk about uh, the beginning of our values, biblical truth. A certain pastor observed a little girl standing outside the preschool Sunday school classroom. It was between Sunday school and the worship service. She's waiting for her parents to come and pick, up, uh, pick her up for big church. The pastor noticed that she was clutching a little Bible storybook under her arm with the title, Jonah and the Big Fish. Feeling mischievous, he knelt beside the girl and he said, what's that you have in your hand? Well, this is my storybook about Jonah and the Big Fish, she answered. Well, tell me something, he said. Do you believe that story about Jonah and the Big Fish? The little girl said, of course I believe it pastor inquired further, you really believe a man can be swallowed up by a big fish, stay inside him all that time and come out okay? She said, yeah, the story's in the Bible and we talked about it in Sunday school today. Pastor said, can you prove to me this story is true? She thought for a moment and she said with her little six-year-old logic, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. Finally, the pastor said, what if Jonah's not in heaven? Little girl put her hands on her hips and looked at him and said, then you can ask him. <laughs> it had never occurred to her, it had never occurred to her that the foundational Christianity, or I should say the foundational literature of Christianity, the foundational literature of her faith was fiction. It hadn't occurred to her. It hadn't occurred to her that the Bible could sort of be trusted for morals, that sort of that's coming through from an ancient culture, but it can't be trusted for history. Or that it could be followed without a full commitment to its truthfulness or veracity. In other words, it never occurred to her we can kind of follow the teachings of the Bible, but just assume that it's really not accurate in other ways. In fact, for most of human history since Jesus, especially from about the third century on, or the fourth century on, when Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, most of that time until very, very recently, the Bible was seen in the Western world as God's word. It was viewed as absolute truth. And believe it or not, especially for those of you who are under 40, all scientific disciplines were viewed as complementary and informed by the Bible. We don't live in that world today. The Bible is always under attack. Historically, it was often from outside of the camp. Today, it's actually more from inside the camp than outside. Today, we're beginning a short series on Bethany's corporate values. This is actually sort of at the elder's request. We were talking about this recently. We've got our AGM coming up in early March, and their desire is to create a set of strategic initiatives or goals that they share with all of us. We went through a strategic plan a few years ago, and 
There was a lot in it. A lot of it we've already executed. Uh, some of that kind of thing you can't really share publicly. Some you can. And they want to be involved in sharing as much as we can about what we're doing behind the scenes. And so we talked about just doing this series right before Easter in the AGM. So that's why we are doing that as they formulate some of the strategic initiatives we'll be sharing at the AGM. Our mission as a church, sort of our tagline, if you will, is opening doors to God's truth and love. Truth without love can never penetrate the hearts and minds of a lost world. They need to see that we actually care. So truth without love doesn't do a lot of good. But love without truth isn't really loving at all. And our first value is biblical truth. And here we're gonna put it up here and show you how it's stated. We believe that the Bible is the only source of truth that can help us to live the lives for which we were created. Values, whether they are in a church or in a corporation, they're sort of the foundation of an organization. It's not everything we believe, but they're core beliefs which guide us toward our mission. If we put everything we believe in our values, we'd have 150 values. You sort of look for, with values, the key things. And goals come from values. Values are like a foundation. A foundation is everything in an organization. My son, his name is Johnny or Jonathan. We named him Jonathan. I think his kindergarten or first school, first grade teacher wrecked that because she had two Jonathans in the classroom, so she started calling him a Johnny and we could never undo it. Johnny's a construction engineer, which means he works on multi-million dollar buildings, probably five million to 400 million. And he's more than a PM, a PM is a project manager. Construction engineers are also project managers. The difference is construction engineers had to go through engineering classes so they actually can tell you when the building's gonna fall down or not, a project manager just reads plans and puts it in place. Johnny can tell you why it will or won't work. So he arrived at a site recently where a big building was going up, it's a multi-floor complex there was rebar extending up one floor with wood forms around it. Concrete trucks were there, you know, with the high pumps and the big hose that dumps concrete down in these big forms so you can build a multi-level building that's got a good foundation. There's rows of columns for this superstructure that's going up. And it was mostly done when he got there. He looked at the plan and he knew the foundation was wrong immediately. And in true brushaber male fashion, he made himself the center of controversy. He's 26 years old. He shut down the whole job site. He ordered the forms to be ripped off of the columns before they were dried. He grabbed a hammer and with the other people from his construction company, pounded out concrete from those forms for three hours before it dried, while the crew that was building the building watched. Later that night, he got a text to meet his bosses early the next morning. It'd be kind of like me getting a text from Aaron Mackey and Stephen Chuang right after a sermon. I want to see you in the morning at 8 o'clock, and I get there, and they're there along with Jesus. So he got to this meeting. He didn't know exactly how it was going to go, and what he heard was from the higher-ups in the company, this is a huge company he works for, good job, Johnny, because he was right. The foundation wasn't right. It didn't match the plans. 
The rebar was supposed to go up two stories, and if it didn't, it would not be able to connect with the next level, and he knew the plans. It couldn't be modified. Everything above a foundation is compromised if the foundation isn't built correctly, and that describes a lot of the church world today. Not all churches. We're not special. There's a lot of churches that believe the Bible, but it's sadly becoming increasingly rare The foundation of much of the modern church in the Western world is not built to sustain the church. It's not going to bear the weight of time, and it's not helping people. I want to read with you a passage out of the Gospel of John. It's on page 87 in your New Testament, page 87. If you want to turn there, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to read just a few verses here. John chapter 17, again, page 87 in the Bible in front of you, beginning in verse 14. Now, Jesus is praying here. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's praying to the Father. And we're going to talk about how kind of strange that is, that Jesus, as God, is praying to God. It's kind of an interesting concept. Verse 14, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Here's the verse we're going to mostly focus on. Sanctify them in the truth. There's kind of two concepts here about truth. The truth. Truth is an objective standard. And then your word is truth. There's kind of two claims there. One is that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Sanctify them in the truth. And then identifying what that would be, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. I'm going to look at three points we see in this passage. The first one is mainly context. In Jesus' absence, he prayed for his disciples' transformation to continue. And then we'll talk about what's necessary for that transformation. So this is a lot about the context here. This is taking place the last week of Jesus' life, just before his arrest and his crucifixion. The whole section is actually called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And the idea of Jesus praying is sort of theologically confusing because when you think about it, you've got Jesus, who's God, praying to God in a belief system with one God, all right? Isn't that a little interesting? Jesus is praying to God in a belief system with one God, so go figure. But what's going on here is what we call in theological circles the economic trinity. It has nothing to do with money, but it's the word economic trinity because when Jesus came to earth, there's these different roles within the trinity. We believe in one God manifest in three persons. While Jesus was on earth within the trinity, the Son submitted to the will of the Father, and he depended upon the Holy Spirit. So there's an activity level of each member of the Trinity. Here Jesus is submitted to the Father, and he's praying to the Father. And he's praying for his disciples. 
He's already predicted earlier in this prayer that the Holy Spirit is going to come and have a different relationship with people of faith than he's had ever in history. He speaks of the world's hostility. He then moves to his concern for his disciples because they're not finished yet. I mean, just on the way to Jerusalem, you, you see this argument, you know, hey, who's number one and who's number two? Who gets to sit on your right hand or your left hand? This, this group of guys has really not got their act together yet. They've been with Jesus for three years. He's ready to leave the planet, and we've got a group of guys who still need some work as we need work, and Jesus is praying to the Father about how he's going to sort of finish the job in them to get them to where they need to be to make a difference in the world. So he's praying to the Father about this, and he says, sanctify them. Well, that's an interesting $30 word, and it has two basic meanings, to set apart or to consecrate. So in the Old Testament, you would see them setting up the temple, building the temple, and there'd be art, sort of articles or artifacts that would go in the temple, and, and they would be consecrated or sanctified, set apart for God's service. That's one use of the word. In that sense, we're to be sanctified unto God, set apart for his service. But usually the word sanctify in our Christian language and the way it's used in the New Testament has to do with to be holy, to become holy, to be morally changed, to be morally perfected. I shouldn't say usually. They're both used quite a bit. And there's a lot of overlap. Interestingly, Jesus has just predicted that the Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell us. But that's not enough. The Holy Spirit would be with us, Jesus said. The Holy Spirit would be in us. Holy Spirit will guide us into truth. But truth itself is something beyond just the presence and person of God. He embodies it. Yes, he is the truth. He claimed to be the truth. But it's more. It's also the body of literature that God gave us historically in his working out his salvation plan with the human family that contains our path for living in a way that pleases him. It's the scriptures. And that's what he refers to, which is our second point, and we're going to park here for a long time. The basis of transformation was both and is both truth as an absolute concept and truth as found in God's word. What's Jesus saying here? Sanctify them in the truth, by the truth, through the truth. If you look at various uh, translations, you'll see different terms used there. The idea is the truth is the instrumental way that God changes us. It, it's how we're changed. It's the means. It also would imply that truth can be distinguished from falsehood or untruth just by the very use of the word. Truth can be objectified. He uses the word sanctify them in the truth before he says your word is truth. And then he claims that this knowable truth is God's word. That's part of it. Your word is truth. It's not all that is true. I don't see, you know, trigonometry in the Bible. I don't see algebra in the Bible. Math, chemistry, sciences, there's truth in them as well. It's not that God's word is all of the truth. Lots of things are true. But it is the truth of God's word that is essential for the transformation in our lives that Jesus says is necessary for us to impact the world. It's God's word. Your word refers to, at this point in history, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, there is no New Testament yet. There are no epistles. The gospels 
you know, exists to some degree in the sense that Jesus has said things, but nobody's written it down and made them into the Gospels and, and circulated them yet. So your word would refer to everything that has been established as scripture to that point by the early people of faith. And they had criteria for what was considered scripture. It had to be written by a prophet, had to agree with everything written thus far, etc., etc. So the law and the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, those things were accepted as truth. And Jesus quoted them all the time. The gospels quoted them all the time as the scriptures, as God's word. If Jesus is saying this to his disciples and he's leaving the planet soon, your word would also refer to everything about to be written and established as scripture. Paul put it this way. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture, or every graphe, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that's a description, basically, of the sanctification process, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Every graphe. So if you were looking in a seminary textbook about what inspiration means, and there's about five different views of inspiration. Uh, some of them are very watered down, but a true view of inspiration, if you believe the Bible, is that the Bible is inspired, which means God-breathed, inspired by God. The word is a compound word, theopneustos, which means theos for God, pneuma for breath or spirit. The breath of God gave us the scriptures. The writers weren't inspired, even though there's a verse, I believe, in one of the books of Peter that says the writers are sort of carried forward by the Holy Spirit. But this verse is saying the writers aren't what's inspired. The writings are inspired. God guaranteed the result. He oversaw the process. He influenced the writers, but he guaranteed the result. We have God's word in the scriptures. Jesus put his divine stamp of approval on the very scriptures that even today are rejected by liberal seminaries, are viewed as myth and legend. Yet they're quoted by the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus as God's word. It all starts here. If we don't believe that the Bible and the idea of truth are synonymous, then there's no such thing as a lasting Christianity. Interesting, both of the uses of truth in John 17 are at risk today. The word of God as truth, and what's also undermining that is the very concept philosophically of the idea of truth, of objectifiable, verifiable, absolute truth. And I want to walk through that. We're going to spend a lot of time here. And we're going to start with the latter concept here. The idea of truth as a concept. Many of us watched a U.S. congresswoman grilling three female presidents of Yale, Harvard, and UPenn recently. How many of you know what I'm talking about? All right. Not long ago, Hamas attacked Israel, had all kinds of tunnels built to key security checkpoints in Israel, and they came in with soldiers. They also came in with a group of people 
who weren't necessarily Hamas, but recognized an opportunity to just take hostages and hopefully enrich themselves. It wasn't all soldiers, some of it was just people. Went in and invaded parts of Israel, took women, children, men, raped the women, dragged them through the streets naked. And the Israeli response to Hamas and trying to wipe it out as an entity has caused a backlash on the campuses of pretty much all the Ivy League schools in the States, which of course have student populations that represent both Jews and people who would be Palestinian. And in those schools, Jewish kids don't feel safe going to class. I'm not saying everything Israel does is okay. I'm not, you know, there are innocent people dying in war. That happens. It does. I'm not saying everything Israel does is good or bad, but, but the reality is they were attacked in this situation, and civilians were attacked. And so anti-Semitism anti is on the rise in the Western world, probably at a level that we've not seen since World War II. So the campuses in the Ivy League system in the U.S. have seemed to be unwilling to really say that the anti-Semitism on the rise in, their school, rise in the schools is wrong. And so I've got a little article here, Campus Reform. As they were grilled by a U.S. congressman, these three presidents just could not give the right answers, and this talks about it. Harvard University President Claudine Gay, this is after she was grilled by Congress, has issued an apology for her Tuesday congressional testimony in which she insisted that the acceptability of calling for the genocide of Jews on Harvard's campus depends on context of the call for genocide. She said, I am sorry, words matter. I got caught up in what had become at that point an extended combative exchange about policies and procedures. Gay told the Crimson, what I should have had the presence of mind to do in that moment was return to my guiding truth. I want you to think about that word, my guiding truth, which is that calls, which is that calls for violence against our Jewish community, threats to our Jewish students have no place at Harvard and will never go unchallenged. Substantively, I failed to convey what is, and here's this term again, my truth. Now, maybe it's just me, and maybe it's just that I'm an old man and my back hurts. But if one more person says those words in front of me, I'm going to slap them. You cannot understand how dangerous that phrase is philosophically in our world today. My truth. Because that phrase comes from a philosophical shift in society. During the hearing, Representative Elise Stefanik asked Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Well, it can, depending on the context, she answered. So you're calling for the genocide of people, and that may or may not really be bullying. I think the idea is if you're doing it in a classroom and you're talking about philosophical issues, it's not bullying. But if you direct it towards one person that you want to wipe them out or kill them, then it could be bullying. What a brilliant person. Here's the problem. Morality is not contextual. Right and wrong does not depend upon context. The words, my truth, which are increasingly being repeated by younger generations, is indicative of a philosophical shift away from absolutes and away from the concept of absolute truth. 
our world has shifted, and many young people don't understand how it shifted because they didn't live in the world before that. Many of us who are older watch the shift, and it's still hard to kind of understand because we're wondering, who stole our planet? D.A. Carson, one of the best scholars of our lifetime, eloquently saw this coming in his work. He wrote a book, and I want to say it came out in the late 80s, maybe the early 90s, but it was early when I was in ministry. And I got this book. I have a copy at my office. And he saw this coming long before we saw it in society. He knew it was happening in academic and intellectual circles around the world. And he wrote this book, The Gagging of God, and it describes this dangerous philosophical shift in Western institutions. And this began with what we're going to call empirical pluralism. Okay, so what is empirical pluralism? That is just a big word for diversity as a reality. All right? I'll look around this audience. We're diverse. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, increasingly in the, in the Western world, as more immigration took place, and I mean, America was a melting pot, uh, Canada is more of a melting pot than America. It's a little different in its makeup, but more of a melting pot. And the reality is diversity is not a bad thing. That is not a threat to truth. Empirical pluralism is just a recognition in, in society that we're very diverse, and we're increasingly diverse. But with that diversity of race and culture, came a shift to what's called cherished pluralism. Empirical pluralism, we're diverse. Cherished pluralism says, that's really cool. And we celebrate that diversity, and we celebrate the pluralism, and here's the next step. I no longer see my Buddhist neighbor as wrong. Because I'm a Christian, he's a Buddhist. I no longer see him as wrong, I I just see him as different. And as diversity increased in Western culture, we're increasingly hesitant to say one set of beliefs was right and another was wrong. Choice was not simply a reality, but choice of belief system became a value and a priority, and no longer could you have a debate with somebody and say, Jesus is the Son of God, he's God's plan of salvation, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and you're wrong. You can't say that in the Western world anymore. You're the threat to Western society, according to institutions today, if you believe that, and we believe that if you're here this morning you probably believe that so that's cherished pluralism we're diverse empirical pluralism that's really cool and it means nobody is right cherished pluralism that led to philosophical or hermeneutical pluralism hermeneutical pluralism hermeneutics is the science of interpreting literature You read a book, you read a legal document, you read the Bible, you read something, you recognize there's a process of interpretation that's going on. Well, historically, we interpreted literature differently than we're interpreting it today. Today, the belief is, I guess nobody can be right, nobody's right. The only person who is wrong today is the person claiming to be right and to have absolute truth. Old hermeneutics, The way that people studied the Bible and studied documents throughout history, old hermeneutics, the way they interpreted interpreted information, claimed that science and scholarship could lead us to understanding and knowing reality and truth. We studied stuff to know about it. Now, obviously, there's still parts of the sciences that are totally dependent upon this thinking. 
But we studied things. We read things. We tried to understand what the author meant when he wrote them. And that led us to reality and truth. The new hermeneutic, often called deconstructionism, when you hear that word, it should normally scare you to death. I, I know there's plenty of people saying, well, we deconstruct things all the time. I don't like the use of the word in, in anything other than dangerous context because most of it's incredibly dangerous. So the new hermeneutic, or deconstructionism, believes that interpretation is subjective and shaped by the culture of the interpreter. What does it mean to me when I read Jesus' words? And, and, and you know, it, it's not about what it meant to the readers 2,000 years ago. It's just what I feel he's saying to me. And, and there's this view that it's all subjective. And not just that, there's a view that the writers originally were very subjective and they probably didn't get Jesus' words right. So it's trying to wreck the idea of absolutes at both ends of the truth process when it was inscripturated and how we read it. And it throws subjectivity into the process of interpretation where there is not meant to be subjectivity, and if they're right, we can never know what God has said to us because everything's tainted. This is incredibly dangerous, and it's wrecking Western society. Because when you end up with philosophical pluralism, there is no right and wrong. And you think, Paul, you're old and you're starting to exaggerate how bad the world is broken. Well, that is, both of those things might be true. But anyway, let me give you an example. Right out of an Ivy League school, in his book, Visions of Vocation, Christian author and thinker Stephen Garber tells the story of meeting a woman who directed the Protection Project. This is an initiative under Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government that addresses human trafficking. I think we'd all say we're against human trafficking. Garber asked her, so why do you care about the issue of human trafficking? Mostly selling women in the sex industry. Should be pretty black and white. She told the story of her heart opening to the cries of women and girls who were sold into slavery, often involving sexual bondage. And after writing on the issue, the Kennedy School hired her to work at their Protection Project initiative in Washington, D.C. Then Garber describes what happened next. As we walked to her office, I watched her staff walking by in the hallway outside her door, and their serious and eager faces impressed me. And then she said, I get the most interesting applications here. Just imagine, Harvard University, Washington, D.C., human rights. It's a powerful combination, and it draws unusually gifted young men and women from the best universities in America to work on this project against human trafficking of women and girls. But then she surprised me with these words, which shouldn't be a surprise. After a few weeks, they almost always find their way down the hall. So this isn't isolated. One after another, the students come to her door. They knock on my door and they ask to talk. And I know what they're gonna say. After thanking me for the position and the opportunity to be there as a student, maybe to work there, a bit awkwardly they ask this. Who are we to say that trafficking is wrong in Pakistan? Isn't it a bit parochial for us to think that we know what is best for other people? Why is what is wrong for us wrong for them? To be honest, I just don't have time for that question anymore. The issues we address are too real, they matter too much, I need more students like the one you sent me because I need people who believe there is basic right and wrong in the universe. 
Look at the fruit of that my truth perspective. The idea that the writers couldn't really reflect God's information accurately because they were so conditioned by their culture. and We as readers are conditioned by our culture and we can't necessarily understand it accurately, nor do we read to, nor do we need to, because it's really my truth or your truth. The fruit of that are the crazy questions I ask myself every day as I watch TV or look at the news, which I increasingly not to do, try not to do because it drives me crazy. I never thought in my lifetime we'd be asking the question, what is a boy or what is a girl? When I was a kid, you have a naked baby. If it's got an Audi, it's a boy. If it's got an innie, it's a girl. It really was simple. We can possibly edit this tape later. But we've lost the idea even in sciences because of this shift that there's reality and truth. Did God communicate his message and is it understandable and able to be interpreted? Did he get the truth through culture, through inspiration? Do we know him? Did God create male and female, as Genesis 2 says? Did God give a blueprint for marriage as the scriptures talk about? Did God give us ethics and a path to live righteously? Did God give us a path to salvation that is understandable through the sacrificial system which pointed to an ultimate perfect savior, son of God, the God-man who rescues us from our sin? Can we be anymore sanctified by the truth, your word is truth, sanctified by God's truth, can we even believe it? Well, if we don't, we offer the world absolutely nothing. Liberals, I know I'm crying too. Liberals have forever sought to discredit the Bible. They claim a multitude of details are inaccurate, made up, myth, legend, etc., etc. Their view would be that you can't trust this book because there's all kinds of things that are inaccurate, and hence the morality as well is just a reflection of ancient human cultures, but not a word from God. There is no God in history giving us his message and morals. We simply have the morals from an ancient group of people who are sort of prudes and prejudicial. But they're wrong. Here's how I view the Bible And here's how scholars have historically viewed the Bible for most of the last 2,000 years. My Bible is loaded, loaded with hundreds and thousands of names of specific people, names of tribes, names of clans, names of city, names of regions, names of nations, geographical references and reference points like like wadis and rivers and mountains and hills that described where battles took place, rivers, kings, kingdoms, dates of events based on kings and kingdoms. It is history in every way. There's historical detail in the Bible that is throughout And I assume, if the historical details are are accurate and they're trying to give us actual history, that the ethical details have been also given to us and reflected accurately. Russ Witten writes about that, the credibility that people have sought to undermine. He said there have been thousands of archaeological discoveries in the past century that support every book of the Bible. Here's just a few examples. Critics used to believe 
the Bible was wrong because they felt that King David was not even a real person. He was legendary, mythical. They pointed to the fact that there was no archaeological evidence that King David was an actual historical figure. Then in 1994, archaeologists discovered an ancient stone slab in northern Galilee that was inscribed with the references to King David and the house of David. Critics used to believe the Bible was wrong because there was no evidence that a group of people called the Hittites ever existed. The Hittites are mentioned about 40 times in the Old Testament. Skeptics were convinced this proved the Bible was a myth, mythical creation of ancient Hebrew writers. Then in 1906, a German archaeologist named Hugo Winkler, great name if you're having a boy, Hugo, was excavating in, uh, oh boy, somewhere in Turkey. I'm not going to give you the spot because I can't read it. They discovered the capital city of the ancient Hittite empire, the entire Hittite library, and 10,000 clay tablets documenting Hittite history. By the way, the book of Deuteronomy is patterned after ancient Hittite treaties. The whole, the whole agreement between God and Israel, the covenant, is, pat is patterned after Hittite documents in its format. Scholars translated these writings and discovered that everything the Bible said about the Hittites was true. Critics used to believe that a king named Belshazzar never really existed. They called into question the book of Daniel, which mentions this Babylonian king. In 1854, Henry Wallinson discovered an ins inscription in Iraq that named Belshazzar as the oldest son and co-regent of King Nabonidus, who would often leave Belshazzar in charge of Babylon when he traveled. This discovery also helped to clarify Daniel 5.29, which says that he was elevated to the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Why not second? Because the king and his son were both ruling, so Daniel was put in third. Critics used to believe the book of Acts wasn't accurate. A man named Sir William Ramsey, who is well known to be one of the greatest historical scholars and archaeologists in history, decided to try to disprove the Bible as God's word by showing that the book of Acts was not accurate. After 30 years of research in the Middle East, he spent 30 years trying to disprove God. But he really came out in a good place. He came to the conclusion that Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. He later wrote a book on the trustworthiness of the Bible based on his discoveries and converted to Christianity. He spent a lifetime, to try, a lifetime trying to disprove the Bible and ended up becoming a Christian because he couldn't do it. He found no historical or geo, uh, geographical mistakes in the book of Acts. This is amazing when we realize that in that book, Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands, 95 people, and he didn't get one wrong. Compare that with the Encyclopedia Britannica. The first year that it was published, it contained so many mistakes regarding places in the U.S. that it had to be recalled. Critics used to believe the Old Testament simply couldn't be reliable because they felt that over a long period of time, the Old Testament writings would have been changed, altered, edited, or corrupted. That's a great concern. Do we really have the Bible as it was written? Or has it been corrupted over time as people didn't copy it correctly? There are inserted changes. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in some caves. These scrolls contained, among other writings, every book in the Old Testament except Esther. Until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the earliest copy of the complete Old Testament was from about 900 A.D. 900 years after Jesus, those were the oldest manuscripts we had of Old Testament books. Scholars compared that copy, 900 A.D., kind of dark ages time, 
with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were produced about 1,000 years earlier. So they're 100 years before Jesus. We have these copies. They're dated 100 years before Jesus. Our oldest copies were 900 AD, or 1,000 years later. They found there was no difference. The Old Testament had been handed down accurately for that last 1,000 years. The Smithsonian's Institution's Department of anthropology has offered the following statement about the historical reliability of the Old Testament. The last I checked, the uh, Smithsonian Institute is not a church. The historical books of the Old Testament are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity and are in fact more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, or Greek histories. These biblical records can be and are used as are other ancient documents in archaeological work. In other words, not only does archaeology confirm that the Bible is historically accurate, but professionals actually use the Bible as a guide in their archaeological work. And if the writers were perfectly accurate with all of these details about people, places, things, events, kingdoms, kings, rivers, wadis, mountains, hills, do you really think they made up the ethical demands of God? Or were they historians of the first class? Did they record his story? They did, which is why Jesus said with confidence, sanctify them by the truth. There is objective, verifiable truth. It exists, not my truth or your truth. Sanctify them by the truth that comes from the person of God. Thy word is truth. It reflects the truth. And third, the truth was intended to lead to a common and unified belief in Jesus that would be a light in a hostile world. He said, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are one. You're in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Sadly, uh, for the record, Jesus' prayer was not answered very well. When you read Jesus' high priestly prayer and what he wanted from the church of Jesus Christ and the world in the future, I would say Jesus didn't get his way. That the church is more broken than he wanted. That you have churches all over the place that differ on major theological points, including who Jesus is. And it is a confusing maze for an outsider looking to understand the truth of God in Christianity. And there can be no unifying message if truth is subjective. But if I were an unsaved person today and I went to five different churches in Calgary or five different churches in any major city in the US, I would get multiple answers about views of the Bible, views of Jesus Christ, views of salvation. And that is not what Jesus wanted. I can't control that and you can't control that. What we can control is what are we going to be? What are we going to be as a church and what are we going to be as individuals? Two very quick apps here. First, a church uncommitted to the Bible as truth is like a leaking life raft thrown to a lost world. If we are not committed to this, what good do we do for a group of people who are outside of faith in Jesus 
if we really believe that heaven and hell are at stake. If we don't believe the Bible, we're just throwing a, throwing a leaking buoy or a leaking life raft to a group of people who need Jesus. And there's nothing for them to hang on to. We need to believe this. Second, have some confidence. The Bible has been attacked more than any other book in history and has stood the test of time. You know what's probably one of the saddest things about us as you hear this message is there's, there's probably a lot of us that don't realize how much credibility there is in, in the scriptures. And it's just because you haven't been exposed to maybe some literature. But there, there are books written on this. There are scholars who spend their lives dealing with this. There, there's archaeological magazines that continually bring out evidence for uh, the accuracy of the Old Testament and all kinds of things in antiquity and history. I mean, if, if this could have been disproved, they'd have done it a long, long time ago. And people like me would be aware of it. And so would you. But they can't. Because it is the truth. And it is God's truth. Uh, we didn't necessarily rank our values, but I would say this one kind of stands above all others because if we can't trust the Bible, I don't know where we start as a church. So we're a church that... No matter how much the culture moves, no matter how old-fashioned we become, no matter how out of date we become with the latest crazy things that comes from the educational institutions of the Western world, I believe God has spoken. And I believe he's given us all the answers we need to know how to live for him and to know how to be salt and light in this world. And that's what we need to be. It's not easy. It's not easy in a world that views people like us as the judgmental people just because we believe there is a way to live that pleases God and there are other things that don't please God. I get that. I would like everyone to like me. I gave up on that a while back, but I'd still like it. You want to believe this? You're just not going to fit in, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I am. But they killed the disciples. They killed Jesus. And Jesus said it probably isn't going to be better for a lot of his followers. We've been lucky to be in a Western world that for a couple hundred years was pretty respectful of this book. Now increasingly we're losing that. But we're supposed to be salt and light. Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. God, thank you for your word. We are so grateful that we have a firm foundation to live our lives off. And it's not easy, and we do it so incredibly imperfectly. I know I do. But whenever in my life I'm not following what your word says, it's because I choose it. It's not because it's not clear. Your word is clear. It's not always a simple book, but it's, it's clear. It's clear what is right and wrong. It's clear how we find a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And we have choices to make. Will we believe and follow your word? I pray that you would help us to understand the great credibility that exists in history as it relates to your word so that we can have confidence then when we read it or study it or know it through a variety of means or listen to it that it's exactly what we need to become the people that you want us to be. Sanctify us. Set us apart for your service. Make us holy by the truth which is in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.